Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Hosea chapter 6. Hosea chapter 6. I heard I need to give you a little more time to find Hosea. Hosea is uh, in the Old Testament, so if you go about halfway through your Bible, march a little bit further than that. It's the first of the 12 minor prophets. So the short books there at the end, it goes Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then Hosea. So it's just a, a book of about 12 chapters, and we've been walking through it for three weeks, counting today. We've got three more weeks. We're right about halfway through uh, this book. Uh, this morning, as we walk through this, we're going to see an aspect of God's love. Hosea is really the record of God's scandalous love for his people, and this morning we'll see that God's love is sometimes manifested as a tough love. And we're going to see in God's word this morning that God disciplines us in love, that he may heal us by his grace. God disciplines us in love, that he may heal us by his grace. So Hosea chapter 6, we'll read this chapter together. Hosea 6, 1. Come. Let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I've seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed. So last week, as we came to the end of Hosea chapter 5, we saw a note of hope, a call to God's people to return and seek the Lord. And Hosea is a record of God's love, calling to his people over and over again to return to him. But in spite of God's scandalous love, what we see over and over and over again is that both Israel and Judah harden their hearts in spite of God's mercy. And so the verses we've just read are the beginning of a record now that lasts several chapters as God itemizes Israel's sin. So we're going to continue reading it now in Hosea 7, verse 1. Would you follow along as I read? When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed, and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief breaks in, and the bandits raid outside, but they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them, they are before my face. By their evil they make the king glad, and the princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers, for with hearts like an oven they approached their intrigue. All night their anger smolders. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven. They devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. 
Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all of this. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine they gash themselves, they rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. So the Lord categorizes the sins of the people. And what we're going to see is God's tough love toward his children as they stray, as they wander. As I was thinking about this week, I was remembering a moment in my life. Now, I don't know what, you're, some of you are still young, but I don't know if, how many of you can remember when you were very young. There's not that much. Some people have really good memories of those first days of life. I don't. I, there's a lot I forget. But there's a distinct memory. I'm guessing I was in the neighborhood of three or four years old. It was my birthday. Now, my favorite restaurant in my hometown of Greenville, South Carolina, it was a restaurant, I'm sure it doesn't exist anymore, at the time called Streamers. Now, I didn't like it because of the amazing food. I think I just went, I probably just got a cheeseburger every time we went there. I liked it because it was in a hotel, and the lobby of this hotel was filled with waterfalls, fountains, places where you could throw coins, things like this. I didn't care at all about the food. I liked going and looking at these water features. And so it's my birthday, and my dad is going to take me out for dinner for my birthday to Streamers. Well, that night, my dad got home, and he asked me if I was ready to go, and he said we were going to the Hyatt. Now, at age four or thereabouts, I didn't connect the dots that, that Streamers was the restaurant in the Hyatt. And so when he said we were going to the Hyatt, I was immediately incensed. What? I thought you said we were going to Streamers, and I pitched a little bit of fit. Now, the thing that makes this so memorable is actually what happened next. Because that night, my dad didn't take me to streamers. He actually took my sister. And here I am standing before you today, and that is the, one of the most powerful lessons that I can remember as a child. And I think, as a parent, how much that must have pained my dad to do that. Here I am, pitching a tantrum, and so instead he takes my older sister to the place I wanted to go. And of course, by this time I realized what a mistake I had made, but it was too late. And sometimes the most difficult manifestations of love are tough love. And what we're going to see this morning is that God sometimes manifests his love toward us in discipline for our sin. Because there's no question that tough love is what's warranted for our flagrant sin. And here we have Israel with a list of many sins. The first of which we find in verse 4, their insincere devotion. 
Hosea 6.4 describes their love as fair weather love, like a morning cloud, like dew that goes early away. Uh, when I was seven, our family moved from the heart of the city of Greenville, outside of town, just north of town, uh, to an area called Taylor's, and we lived uh, close to Highway 25. If you're headed north uh, from South Carolina to North Carolina, you take this up toward Asheville. And still today, when you approach my mom's house, the, the last hill as you're coming down uh, toward our road, you see right behind there a beautiful view of the Blue Ridge Mountains. And I can remember many days as I uh, began driving, I'd be headed on the way into school, you'd leave our house, and what would you see all around? You'd see mist, early morning fog lying in those hills. But by 9 or 10 o'clock, you drive past those same hills, and there is no fog. It quickly burns off because of the heat of the sun. And the Israelites' love for God is like that fog. Oh, it's there sometimes real strong, but it's quickly gone away. They're insincere in their commitment to the Lord. They're easily distracted. They're the kind of people who talk a good game when the right person is around, but it's just a show because when the wrong people are around, their devotion is gone. Hosea 7, 4, and 8 compare Israel to a baker who's really bad at his job, who doesn't fix, finish mixing the dough and doesn't bake it all the way. Ephraim, the text says, is a cake not turned. Have you ever had the experience of looking at a biscuit that just looks amazing? And then you bite into it and you realize the batter wasn't mixed because what you get is a mouthful of flour. And in that moment, that delicious looking biscuit turns to sand in your mouth. Half-hearted devotion is like a bad biscuit. It looks good on the outside, but it's dry as sand on the inside. In chapter 7, the Lord goes on to describe their hypocrisy as false dealing, treachery, intrigue, and lies. You see, in the end, claiming to follow the Lord without sincerely walking with the Lord is living a lie. Or to use Hosea's more common metaphor, chapter 7, verse 4, they are all adulterers. Adultery is such a violation of trust that there's something in all of us that, that responds viscerally to it. No one ever thinks the guy or the girl who committed adultery, that's a good dude. Because there's something in us that understands it's such a breach of trust to do this. I mean, there are a lot of sins that are growing more and more culturally acceptable. But for some reason, we understand the betrayal of this sin. It's not merely a hiccup. And the Lord describes our spiritual wandering in precisely these terms. So where does adultery like this come from? It comes from our hard hearts. Chapter 7, verse 10, the Israelites are angry people. Their hard hearts against the Lord, are manifesting themselves with anger in their relationships. All night, chapter 7, verse 6, their anger smolders. In the morning, it blazes like a flaming fire. And this horizontal anger in our relationships burns then against the Lord in rebellion against God-ordained authority. Hosea 7, 7, all of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. But rebellion against earthly authority is merely a manifestation of a heart that's in rebellion against our creator. 
Hosea 7.13, the Lord says, they have rebelled against me. Hosea 7.16, the insolence of their tongue. Hosea 8.1, they have rebelled against my law. Well, how does rebellion manifest itself in our lives? Well, it looks different based on our stage of life often, doesn't it? I mean, when we're young, it looks a little bit different. I mean, rebellion in an insolent tongue sounds a lot like me when I was 15 years old. I mean, I was a relatively good kid, but I sure knew how to mouth off at my mom when my dad wasn't in the room. And when it comes to children and teens, the most basic and clear biblical responsibility is children obey your parents. Honor your father and your mother. Okay, well, if that's true, how do you know when you're free from that responsibility? I'm an emerging adult. How do I know when I'm free from this? I think it's pretty simple. When you live like an adult, when you pay your own bills, when you pay your own phone bill, own your own car, put a roof over your head, buy your own food. Until then, God is pretty clear. Obedience and honor. But rebellion isn't merely for young people, is it? I mean, it looks a little bit different for us. Scripturally, there are at least three God-ordained spheres of authority. The home, the church, and the state. And for all of us, it's a matter of fact, scripturally speaking, that part of membership in a local church is submission to God-ordained spiritual authority as the word of God is brought to bear in our lives. When was the last time it occurred to you that membership in a church meant submission to spiritual authority? Or in election year, you don't have to press very hard to see this tendency in our hearts, do you? You see it come out in conversations with each other with how quick our tempers get irritated with someone who views things differently or worse, potentially, a conversation online. And we look like these kind of people who Hosea says devour their rulers rather than honor the emperor who's persecuting the Christians, as Paul calls the church to do. You see, God calls us to honor spiritual and state authority, even when we disagree with their policies. So where does rebellion like this come from? Hosea 7.10, the pride of Israel testifies to his face. Rebellion is rooted in pride, and pride is sinful self-dependence. It's the idea that I don't need God, and because I don't need God, I can operate independent of his authority. But rebellion might not manifest itself that actively in your life. But it might look like this, Hosea 7, 7, their kings have fallen and none of them calls upon me. One of the clearest demonstrations of our pride is our prayerlessness. The idea that we don't need the Lord. When prayer becomes a last resort for God's people, like that emergency prescription, it's a demonstration that our hearts are proud because God is holy, sin always incurs his judgment. There's no sin that God misses. Let's read Hosea chapter 8 now. Hosea 8 verse 1. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord. Because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, my God, we Israel, we know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. 
They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel the craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads, that ye shall yield no flour. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up, and the king and princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt, for Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. And Judah has multiplied fortified cities, so I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. Hosea 8.1 paints a picture of great urgency. Set a trumpet to your lips, one like a vulture is over the house of the Lord. The picture is of people sleeping in an advancing army. The soldier sounds the alert, sound the trumpet, they are coming. You see, when judgment comes, it will be consistent with God's word. Hosea 6.5, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. If you track all the way to the end of your Bible, Revelation is a picture of a revelation of Jesus Christ. In particular, the end of all time and when he comes back to fully and finally rule his people and judge his enemies. And in the midst of this picture, this revelation of Jesus, Revelation 19 gives us a very clear picture of Jesus returning in judgment. And on that day, John writes, there will be one like a rider on a white horse, and his name is called the Word of God. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he will judge the nations. The sword that God uses to judge the nations is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You see, God holds us accountable to his Word. We like to conceive of a God who judges us according to our expectations. But God doesn't judge us according to our expectations for his expectations, but rather according to his own expectations. And on that day, the question will be not, did you meet your standards, but did you measure up to my holy standard? What is it that God requires? Micah 6.8 asks this question, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Jesus in Matthew 22, when being asked what it is that God requires of us, he says simply to love God with all your heart, to love your neighbor as yourself, no less than six times in God's word, both old covenant and new, does God command us to be holy, for I, the Lord, am holy. God's expectations aren't merely related to our conceptions of his expectations or some set of externals. Rather, God is concerned with our hearts. 
God is seeking our hearts. Hosea 6, 6, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God cares more about our hearts in worship than any merely external association with religious observance. This is often the case with particular sins. There's not one cliff edge to stay away from. There are two. It's, It's a narrow precipice. Because on the one hand, there are those who dress up real nice while their hearts are rotten on the inside. And they say, as long as everyone thinks I'm okay, I must be okay. But on the other cliff's edge, there are those who say, God cares only about my heart, and so as long as I claim to have a sincere heart before the Lord, it doesn't matter what I do. And God says, no, he's holistic. Proverbs 4.23 says, to keep your heart with all diligence, for from it, from it flow the rest of the issues of life. God cares about our hearts because they are the root from which spring the rest of our life, the fruit of our lives. I mean, how is it that Jesus put it? If you love me, you'll do what? You'll keep my commandments. There is an integral relationship between a heart of worshiping God and a life of worshiping the Lord. Some of us party hard on Saturday, dress up nice on Sunday. Others, though, live fairly calm lives and claim hearts of sincere worship toward God while ignoring God's clear commands, like gathering for worship or pursuing personal holiness. With God, he's not an either-or. It's a both-and. We pursue the heart because the rest of life flows from the heart. And when judgment comes, it's going to be painful to experience you can't outrun God. I mean, Israel tries. They try real hard, but as Hosea 8, 7 says, they sow the wind, and they reap the whirlwind. It's a rather different take on a well-known proverb. You reap what you sow. You plant apple seeds, you get apples. Plant orange seeds, you get orange. You plant corn, you get corn. How, then, do you plant wind? I mean, it's not something you can grab. I mean, there's really not any good way to harness it. It's, it's not something you can grasp and put in the ground. So, so what is this? Chasing a life of sin is like chasing the wind. Chasing something that's, that's there, seems to be real, but can, can never be truly grasped. Pursuing happiness in all the wrong places. Pursuing contentment where contentment can't be found. And when you chase the wind of sin, you plant those kind of seeds, you reap a tornado of consequences. A man sins in secret, bound to uncontrollable sexual addiction, thinking no one knows, no one sees. Yet God knows, God sees. And God will judge. A woman seeking to cope with anxiety, pressure, becomes bound to prescription drugs or alcohol and thinks she can manage it on her own. But no matter who you are or the sin you chase, chasing the wind of sin will always lead to the tornado of God's judgment. 
it will blow back in your face harder than you can imagine. The Lord is not someone to trifle with. Sometimes it comes in earthly troubles, Hosea 8.3. The enemy shall pursue him. And sometimes it comes from the anger of the Lord, Hosea 8.5. My anger burns against them. So the wind, you will reap the whirlwind. And no one escapes God's judgment. God's judgment is universal in scope. Now, there's a part of us that believes that we can sin without God finding out. And when it comes to fooling your parents or a boss, that is sometimes possible. No one catches everything. But God is not like us. God sees all. God knows all. Hosea 7.2, they don't consider that I remember all their evil. There's not one sin that God misses. Hosea 8.13, he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. Now, I know that we're all tempted to live this way because I sometimes live this way. I was a little older than the story I told earlier, and we were having some special services at our, at our church, and I can remember sitting in a pew one night, one weekday night, and as I sat there, I was sitting with one of my, uh, my good friends. In fact, he came down and visited me uh, last week. We had, we had lunch together. As we were sitting there, my parents weren't around. Uh, my mom, I think, was singing in the choir. My dad had some responsibilities, so I was sitting there with my little buddy. Now, he was also a pastor's kid, and so we're sitting there, and we're just cutting up and having a good old time. I mean, in fact, it was probably the best 15 minutes of my life there. We just kind of sitting, giggling, in the, and I remember his mom leaning over, and she would like jerk up on the hair in the back of my neck. I didn't care. I was just like having a good old time. We were having too much fun to pay attention. Well, then the time came to dismiss the kids, and the kids were going to head out for their special program. Oh, kids, get up. And I got up and walked out the door and walked out the door, just like that one. The door opened, and there stood my father. Somehow, unbeknownst to me, he had been observing me the entire time. Now, I don't really know. I, I know parents don't see y'all. I think my dad really did see everything I ever did. I mean, that man put the fear of God to me. And I walked out that door, and the minute I knew, he didn't even need to say anything. He said, come with me, and I knew my dad had seen. But brothers and sisters, there are no exceptions to God's judgment. God sees all. God knows all, even when we think no one is watching. And in chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, God promises destruction because they have rebelled against me. God's judgment is inescapable for sinners, and this is terrible news, because Romans 3, 10 to 12 tells us there is no one righteous, no, not one. There is no one who understands, there is none who seeks God. Or as Romans 3, 23 more famously and succinctly, succinctly puts it, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There are no exceptions to this rule. We're all sinners, and there are no exceptions to God's judgment. God doesn't miss a single sin. He doesn't forget anything. And so where in the midst of that do we go for hope? With a God who sees all and knows all, how can we hope? And God says, it's in his tough love in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Hosea calls the nation to respond to God's loving discipline. Come, let us return to the Lord. And then he graciously highlights for us God's threefold purpose in his discipline, the first of which is healing. God heals us through his discipline. 
Now imagine with me this morning that you're an adult responsible for a child. And you're not a good adult. And so you occasionally just strike the child randomly to the point where the child begins to duck anytime the child sees you coming near. Or maybe you manifest it a little bit differently and you love taking things from this child so the child can have the things that he likes. He likes his blanket, you take the blanket. He likes a particular kind of food, you place it in front of him and you take it away. But imagine that you're a different kind of adult. You're a parent, guardian, there's a child under your care and you see that child running toward danger and you do whatever it takes to stop that child from running into danger. Or the child begins to act in a particular way, and so you remove some privileges from that child in love for that child to help that child learn what's wise, learn what will protect his soul or his life. God's purpose in discipline is healing. He has torn us, Hosea 6.1, that he may heal us. It's a tough love. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. Psalm 103 tells us of God's loving care for his children as the Lord has compassion, the Lord has compassion on his children as a father has compassion on his own. Sometimes the kindest thing a good dad can do is discipline his children in love. Why? I mean, how can that be right? Because the pain of discipline spares us from the greater pain of God's judgment. The greater danger that sin brings. Proverbs 23, verse 14, physical discipline may well save a child from death. We were recently in a situation, there were a number of things going on, some of which were physically dangerous to our children. When you're in a, in a, in a place like that, you keep an eye out. And, and one of our kids was not listening and ran toward the danger, didn't see it. I spoke the child's name, I spoke it again. The child didn't respond. And so then I stopped the child and I put my hand and I said, you listen to my voice. You were running toward danger. It's important that you listen to the voice of your father and mother. Now tell me, what's loving? To allow that child to run to danger or to protect that child from danger? danger. The Lord strikes us so that he may heal us. His purpose and discipline is healing. He has a second purpose. It's resurrection. The Apostle Paul gives a beautiful summary of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Hosea 6, 2 more clearly than any other passage in the Old Testament, predicts the resurrection of Jesus on the third day. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. No other passage speaks so clearly of this moment. You see, the work of the gospel is God's taking spiritually dead people and raising them to life in Christ. As Ephesians 2 says it, but we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you are saved. The work of the gospel, the work of resurrection. And sometimes this work in our hearts, 
comes through God's tough love and allowing us to experience the consequences of our sin. One of the most remarkable stories of salvation in the Old Testament is King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar comes in, and for Judah, this is not good news. So Hosea speaks to the northern kingdom of Israel. Now Nebuchadnezzar is conquering the southern kingdom, Judah. And he's a very powerful king, and one day he walks out on the roof of his palace, and he looks out, and everything he can see, he owns. I mean, can you imagine that? That if you were that guy, everything your eye could see belonged to you. And he walked out, and he thought this thought and said these words, look what my hands have done. And when the Lord saw his heart of pride, the Lord struck Nebuchadnezzar in judgment. He said, no longer will you rule, but you'll become like a beast of the field. And Daniel tells us that's exactly what happened. Nebuchadnezzar went insane. He went out. He lived in the field. His nails grew long. He became his, his hairy like an animal. He was gross and dirty. And then the Lord graciously brought Nebuchadnezzar to his senses. And at the end of this, he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Sometimes the most gracious thing that God can do for us is allow us to experience the consequences of our sin. And friend, perhaps you're here this morning in a place where you are experiencing the misery of your sin. You pursued what you thought would bring you fulfillment, what you thought would bring you happiness, and you find yourself unfulfilled and unhappy. Would you turn from that way? Would you return to the Lord and find your happiness in Jesus? If you turn from your sin and trust his perfectly lived life, the life that you couldn't live but should have lived, his sacrificial death, his burial, and his resurrection, you can have life with God. Return to the Lord. He will raise us on the third day that we might have life with him. Will you trust Jesus? But God's loving discipline doesn't stop there. He also brings us refreshment. Hosea 6.3, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Ever see a flower wilting under the heat of the sun? Get some water and be refreshed. Spring back up. Our relationship with God is a life-giving, refreshing relationship. For those who know the Lord by faith, time with God is like a cool glass of water on a hot day. The best antidote for sinning less isn't merely trying not to sin. We shouldn't sin. But rather, adoring and worshiping the God who refreshes your soul. It's learning to love God more than loving your sin. Do you know the Lord? I don't mean merely, do you know God through faith in Christ? Certainly mean that because you can't know God apart from that. But I mean, do you know God? Have you devoted yourself to knowing the character of God as is revealed in his word? Time in his word, time with God's people worshiping and adoring, understanding his mercy, his love, his grace. Because to know God is to be refreshed by God. Do you know any of those people, I mean, the kind of person that you're around, and every time, you don't even know what happens, but you leave, it, and you're happier because you've been around that person, because they're a refreshing person to be around. 
to know God is to know the most refreshing person. To know God is to spend time in worship and in his word getting to know him. So if this is God's purpose in discipline, what then is the proper response to discipline? It's twofold. Repentance, return to the Lord, and faith, press on to know the Lord. Judgment waits for everyone who fails to respond to the good news of the gospel. So we've used two concepts this morning, and we've used them in an overlapping way, and it can be a little bit confusing. We've talked about God's judgment, and we've talked about God's discipline. How do we know if we're experiencing God's judgment or God's discipline? And the key here, there are two keys. One is a a relationship of outcome, and the other is the relationship itself. You see, the difference between discipline and judgment is one of relationship and outcome. And our response to the circumstances God places us in tells us a lot about that relationship. You see, a judge punishes a parent disciplines. Now, to help us understand this, I'm going to go to the fount of all wisdom, the original Toy Story. So this movie came out in 1995, and in this story, there are two boys. One is Andy. Andy's a good kid. He owns all the toys. Woody, uh, Buzz, Rex, that's Andy. Sid is the kid next door who is terrible to his toys. Now, one day, all of Andy's toys are looking, and they're watching Sid next door, and he's torturing toys and laughing maniacally. And Buzz, who's not quite a get-it guy, he looks over there, and he says, you mean like that happy child over there, to which the other toys respond and say, He's not a happy child. He tortures toys just for fun. Now imagine that torturing toys isn't Sid's only problem. Imagine that he tortures children and and, and antagonizes other people. He's a really bad kid. Well, what are Sid's parents' responsibilities with relation to Sid? To discipline him. To, To try to instruct him in a way that says, that's not the right way to treat people and maybe not the right, right, right way to teach your, treat your toys whether or not they actually have feelings. But imagine that same child becomes an adult and his parents never disciplined, he never learned those lessons. So now Sid stands before a judge and in this case he's antagonized another adult human being. What is the difference when St- Sid stands before the judge versus when he stands before mom and dad? The difference is one of relationship, and based on that relationship, the ultimate difference will be in the outcome. You see, the judge's responsibility isn't one of love and care, it is one of justice. And if you've ever stood before a judge or observed a judge in action, you know this is true. A judge isn't there to be compassionate. A judge is there to pronounce justice, judgment. Mom and dad, they exist for an entirely different reason. They're here to bring loving discipline, to interact with compassion for that child, to save that child from judge justice. And for those who know God, that is the difference. God interacts with his children as a loving heavenly father with compassion. As Hebrews 12 says it, the Lord is treating you as his sons. What father is there who doesn't discipline his son? For no discipline for the moment seems to be joyous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who endure it. 
God disciplines his children in love and judges his enemies eternally. The way we see it this morning is that God disciplines us in love that he may heal us by his grace. God's love is sometimes a tough love, but we thank God for his tough love because it saves us from his judgment. Let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk with him now.